What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Welcome, everyone, to a Baseball America podcast. Along with Jim Callis, I am John Manuel, live from Durham. Jim's live from Chicago, and we're here on your computer, on iTunes, or on BaseballAmerica.com. We're brought to you, as always, by MLB Network. And, Jim, I think we both wish that uh, while you were on MLB Network's broadcast of the draft back in June, we all wish there had been a MLB Network afternoon special for the draft signing deadline at 4 p.m. like there was for the trade deadline. We all would have gotten a lot more sleep this week. Uh, we wouldn't have to be taking, getting a, sneaking in some cat naps and some Leonardo sleep in the middle of the day. But uh, a hectic and uh, really f- more frenzied uh, Monday night deadline than usual. Uh, let's just dive right into the process and what MLB's, you know, this signing deadline instituted in 2007 is really kind of done to this process. It really just seems like, uh, as with pretty much every change, Jim, that MLB makes to the draft, there's just always unintended consequences that go into the hodgepodge, hodgepodge approach to the draft rules. And uh, a lot of things happen that MLB didn't think would happen when they start, when they make up a rule like an August 15th signing deadline. Yeah, you know, the thing was, everybody wanted this signing deadline, you know, both sides, you know, because the old rule was kind of goofy, you know, it, it was, you know, the day a player set foot in a classroom, he was no longer eligible to sign, and I always wondered, you know, are there hundreds of Major League Baseball, like, hall monitors across the country, okay, Jeff Austin going into the classroom, well, he stopped at the door, you know, on walkie-talkies, relaying the information, and you could, and then you had Scott Boris, I think, with Jeff Austin, instituted the well, the guy's not going to go back to school, and then, you know, he could sign all the way up until a week before next year's draft, and, and teams wanted a hard deadline, and, and, and the agents were fine with that, too. You know, you know, we can, you know, the agents only wanted a deadline. They don't care when it is. You know, if Scott Boris or whoever is going to work you up against the deadline, it doesn't matter if the deadline is, you know, May 31st or steps foot in classroom or August 15th or even June 30th. They don't care. Right. Um, but MLB, for some reason, I know when they concocted this, they felt by strengthening the draft compensation rules and putting in this deadline as if that, would, that it was going to put more pressure on players to sign and give teams uh, the upper hand. And what they didn't realize, and they should have realized, is that the agents don't care when the deadline is. That wasn't going to affect getting guys signed you know, cheaper or quicker. And two, the teams in the end, and this is you know what it always boils down to, the teams want to sign the players. That's, That's why they take them. That's why they're going to go over slot to sign them. And after the first, in the first year, thinking they had extra hand, MLB said, okay, we're going to cut the slot recommendations for every pick in the, in the draft 10%, you know, because now we're, we're more in control. Well, everybody found out that first summer that a lot of guys held out for the extra 10%, and a lot more guys held out for more. And they all, you know, pretty much got, for the most part, what they wanted by waiting until August 15th. So now, you know, because MLB does not want over slot signings announced, you know, let's use Bryce Harper's example. Let's say that, that the Nationals and Scott Boris had agreed on a $9.9 million deal the day after the draft. They never would have been allowed to announce it until a few minutes before midnight on August 16th. So the agents know there's no point in agreeing to deals because if you get over slot, you can't sign right away. And the longer you wait, the more money you get. So you're better off. You know, there were a number of deals that came out on Monday uh, that had been rumored for months. Dickie Jeffon getting a million and a half from the Blue Jays. You know, that's a guy who probably need to go out and get some at-bats. That deal was agreed to in July at the latest. He could have gotten a month or six weeks' worth of at-bats. The two guys, the, the Royals signed, Brett Eibner for $1.25 million, 
and Jason Adam for eight hundred thousand dollars. I think those deals were pretty much agreed to on draft day, <laughs> and you can't sign those guys. You know, they had to wait till August sixteenth. So it's, it's just the process has gotten really stupid, and it doesn't. You know, hiding the numbers and trying to keep them secret really doesn't keep costs down. And now you just have agents saying, you know, why would we sign before August sixteenth? I, I think the best quote I heard, John. Uh, and I'm rambling here, but the best quote I heard, I was talking to an agent about slots, and he said, we just tell our clients the only thing a slot number means is that's the, that's the money you can get if you want to sign right away. Other than that, it has no basis in fact and it has no bearing on what you're going to get. That's a great way to put it because that's the reality. I mean, and I guess that's, that kind of is the next question, Jim, and maybe I'm going a little too deeper than I meant to, but we've both got sons. Your son's actually playing baseball. He's playing age. Uh, mine's a little young, but... I mean, what would you do? What would you do? What would you have your son do um, if your son was actually a prospect? I mean, not necessarily out of high school. I think we both are, are nerdy enough that we'd insist on our sons going to college unless it was – well, not nerdy enough. We just – we both went to college. We value the college experience. We'd want our sons to go to college unless it was life-changing money. Um, what would it take for you, for your son to sign for slot? And what would it take – how good would your son have to be to not sign for slot? I mean, it really seems like a – it's a strange thing in my mind to turn down. For example, I'm just I'm not trying to pick on Carson Whitson, but Carson Whitson with the ninth overall pick, you know, slots one point nine million dollars and change. That's a lot of money. Um, and he and turned, well, we think he got offered more than that too. Now, correct. Uh, it's funny because my my son, who who will not be drafted, uh, his <laughs> sophomore high school will not uh, be drafted. Although the local high school Nutria has a, a kid who is one of the talks of the area code games, uh, Charles Tilson. That's right, he was one of the drafts. talks. So we may actually have scouts coming to uh, to lovely Winneka uh, to, to see a guy this year. But, um, but no, it's, it's, I agree with you. Life-changing money, too. Like, you know, what is life-changing money? Because I, I, my son and I, AJ and I, do talk about this, not that he's going to get drafted. He's like, hey, if I get offered a million and a half out of high school, would you let me sign? And I'm like, you know... You know, we've got, I've got four kids and a, and a mortgage, and they're going to start going to college soon and everything else. You know, a million and a half dollars, if you gave me a million and a half dollars at age 18, it, it's, you know, back then, geez, if I had signed when I was coming out of high school, it probably would have been like $150,000 would have been good first-round money. That doesn't, a million and a half doesn't set you for life. So, so I don't even know how, I mean, Bryce Harper got life-changing money. Jameson Kyle got life-changing money. Correct. I'm not sure a guy who signs for $2 million, hey, it's, it's a nice nest egg, but, you know, your taxes come out, I'm not sure it's life-changing. And then... You know, I think the thing is that gets tough is if you're a player, you want to feel like you're being treated fairly. And if I know I would have a philosophical problem. Well, I hate the slotting system, so I don't know if my son would sign for slot, John. Yeah. Uh, I would have a problem if, let's say, AJ was coming out of the draft, and I guess he would be, uh, if he came out in his junior year, that would be 2016. So let's say AJ's a... First round pick in the 2016 draft. And let's say we still just have a out of, out of Georgia, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, no, he keeps telling me let's go to Georgia Tech just to, <laughs> just to bother me. Well, I tell him it's fine, but I'm never going to wear any Georgia Tech years. So oh, you say that now. What about the dad who played at Clemson and whose son played for South Carolina this year? He was all clad in South Carolina gear and over. I'm not wearing Georgia Tech. I know that. He even said, "Would you root for me <laughs> if I was playing against Georgia?" And I said, "AJ, I would root for you to do well, and I would root for Georgia to win." So. <laughs> Awesome. Just, if he goes to Georgia Tech, he knows what he's getting into. I can't, I can't root 100 percent for him. But uh, not that I don't respect Danny Hall in this program. <laughs> I went to Georgia. Awesome. No, I get back to it. If, if AJ comes out and we don't have hard slotting into the current system we have now, and you know Bud Selig probably still won't have retired, and he'll he'll still be commissioner for life. That's right. And Bud decides, okay, we're cutting the slots 10 percent arbitrarily. I'd have a problem with that, and I'd say. 
you know, why? You know, why, why is my son worth 10% this year than he would have been last year just because MLB unilaterally decides that? So, um, you know, it just comes down to, I think, sometimes there are some hard you – know, I know there's a lot of hard feelings among the agents with the way the teams collude and try to sit on deals and make the agent, you know, sound like the bad guy or the player sound like the bad guy because he's holding out. When, you know, some of these overslot deals could have been agreed two months ago, but MLB won't allow it. So it's, uh, you know, I, I don't, we would not automatically just be signing for slot, but uh, uh, we, we'll have to see. We, we've got five years to figure that out. That's right. I, I really do think it's a, it's difficult. I mean, you, I, I think you hit on the big point. You as a player and you as a parent, you never want to feel slighted. And I mean, like, we, we've talked about this a few times, like Wade Townsend, you know, on the one hand, Wade Townsend was, in 2004, was kind of ridiculous in a way at the, that he turned down $1.7 million and was so insulted by an offer of $1.7 million. But he wasn't even offered slot. He was offered below slot. And if you really look at it from his perspective, you can understand why he was insulted by that. And obviously things never worked out for Wade on the pro baseball field. Uh, now he's a, a professional poker player. <laughs> I know he won a tournament, won grand in one tournament, so... Uh, he's done pretty well off the field, but I I, I think it's it's it's, a, it's I, the people who just drop in. I'm not nothing against fans, but fans who just drop in, see what these guys. Are like, How can Carson Whitson turn down almost two million dollars or more than that? Because we are pretty confident he was offered more than that. Um, I think more goes into it than that. It's a more complicated picture. So speaking of Carson Whitson, let's talk about the guys who signed and who didn't sign. I think another unintended consequence during about this deadline, the, the hard mid-August deadline that's come in is every year now we have one, two, three unsigned first-round picks. And for most of the first part of the decade, an unsigned first-round pick was pretty rare. And now the last three years, we've had seven combined unsigned first-round picks. And this year, health was a factor with two of them. Health was not a factor with Carson Whitson. Let's touch on the two that were. And obviously, one of them, they're both unique situations. Dylan Covey with the Brewers doesn't sign after he's uh, taking his physical, basically, uh, which means that you have to take the physical just before you can sign, really, as a first-round pick anyway. So that means there are going to be some serious negotiations. doesn't necessarily mean that there have been, but they're going to be. And he's taking his physical, and he is diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, which explains a lot about his late-season slide. And, uh, and he ends up deciding just to go to college as opposed to signing with the Brewers. And then you have the Barrett-Lauk situation, which is came out a month ago, and now it's compounded by the fact that MLB has declared him a free agent, uh, effective September 1st. I like the Barrett-Lauks rule, and let's talk about that one a little bit, Jim, because I think it's really just MLB applying what it does to other players who get their contracts voided, the, called the Cody Scarpetto rule, even though he's certainly not the first and won't be the last. But he's a prominent prospect who signed, had his contract voided, re-signed, but had to instantly be put on the 40-man roster, basically, right? Yeah, they um, did that. I mean, it worked out for him. But, right, but Barry Lauks yeah, is a free agent. I think the Barry thing, I'll give MLB credit, too. I, I think they do a lot of silly things with trying to manipulate the draft. But here I think that they did what was fair. Although I, I do wonder, you know, what kind of precedent this is going to set for players down the line. I mean, what happened with Lauks, and this happens a lot, it, you know, where you, like you just mentioned, you take a physical before you finalize the contract. And, you know, Barrett was a guy who was drafted sixth overall. Probably should have been more of a, a late first round or sandwich pick, you know, on pure talent. But they were going to take him and save a little money by signing him for below slot. You know, so they agreed to a deal reportedly worth around $2 million. And they go do the physical, and they found, I, I guess, some wear and tear in his shoulder and elbow. And, and 
and, and the tough thing is, you know, Barry pitched. He was healthy all season. He had bone chips removed from his elbow as a sophomore at Texas A&M. And he had shoulder tenderness as a senior in high school a couple of years before that. And when they did the physical, it wasn't that Barrett, you know, was not physically ready to pitch now. Because he pitched all season, had a great year at Texas A&M. But they didn't like the wear and tear they saw. And that can be very subjective as to, you know, some doctors might say, you know, look, we like him, let's keep him. Very true. Normal. And other people will say, you know, look, this worries me. We shouldn't do this. And that's the recommendation the Diamondbacks had. And so then Laux was stuck. You know, the Diamondbacks can walk away and get the number seven pick in next year's draft. But Barrett Laux, you know, here he is, you know, team has said, you know, doesn't clear him medically. You know, is he really going to go back to Texas A&M as a senior? Right. You know, and worry about not getting hurt? I mean, it just he's kind of left, you know, damaged to some extent by the process. And you're right, had he, had he signed a contract, and, you know, I mean, you wouldn't do this. Had he signed a contract, and then, you know, they found a pre-existing injury, or there were a pre-existing injury that wasn't healing like they hoped, you know, a month down the line, they then could void the deal, and he would have been a free agent, which is what wound up. And so I do think, you know, it was very generous, and I do think it was the right decision and very fair of MLB to make Bear Louts a free agent. Although, I, I bet you, I'll bet you somewhere, or maybe not, but, you know, Scott Biddle, who's a reliever in the Cardinals system, the same exact thing happened to him a couple of years ago without much fanfare because he was a second-round pick of the Yankees who had just torn up the SEC, had had a tremendous season, dominated yeah. everybody with his cutter. Led the league in strikeouts as a relief pitcher. Yeah, I mean, just unbelievable season. He goes in the second round, and then when the Yankees were doing the, the full physical, it was the same thing. They did not like the wear and tear in his shoulder, even though he was obviously you know, able to pitch at that point and very dominant, and they wound up not signing it. Uh, you know, and so, you know, I mean, Biddle wound up going in the next year's draft and went to the Cardinals, and you know, so he did wind up getting into pro ball, but I just, you know, I guess because it was a higher profile situation with Barrett being the number six pick, they decided to step in. And as you said, I mean, I think you may see the two sides, the union and Major League Baseball, work to try to institute some kind of pre-draft medical combine, which, you know, I realize you probably have players who, who would not attend. You know, I don't think you could compel them to be there. You know, like I would guess this year Anthony Ronato, you know, who had elbow problems during the during the spring, you know, Boris may not have wanted him to get a full physical before the draft. But I, I do think, you know, if you had the uh, medical combine, you know, Barry Laux could get cleared. Um, you know, Dylan Covey, you know, maybe his diabetes is diagnosed then. And then Dylan can tell teams, you know what, because of his diagnosis, I think I'm better off going to school for three years, learning how to manage it before going into pro ball. Also, the teams will have that information before they draft these guys. Well, that's what I'm saying. It's yeah. good for so you everybody. Don't, you, don't, you, you, don't, you don't have Bear Louth's base. Bear Louth got trapped in a way right. because he, he, got, he went so high in the draft, it was an easy decision for the Diamondbacks to say, look, we'll just take the number seven pick in next year's draft. If Bear Louth had been the 40th pick in the draft, correct. we might have seen him sign for $500,000 at some kind of discount. You know, I, the Yankees did that the same year with Biddle. Uh, with uh, Jeremy Bleich got a got a discount because they didn't like what came back with him medically. This, we saw it happen with Alan Dykstra with the Padres a couple of years ago. He got a reduced bonus in the first round because the Padres and they did the physical were concerned about his hip. And again, I mean, there's a guy who had had a, a strong season at Wake Forest and had played and, and had not been hurt, you know, had not missed time. So I, I just think, I think both sides like something like that. I think the biggest logistical problem is when do you do it? Because as you suggest, you have to move back to draft because, you know, if my team's going to the College World Series, if I'm UCLA, uh, you know, this year I'm not making Rob Rasmussen, you know, hey, leave the team and go, go to the physical combine. Right. You know, that just wouldn't be, you know, that part of it wouldn't work out. But, you know, maybe you could have the draft later. 
I think and it's in the current CBA. They could have any time in June. So they could move it back next year if they wanted to unilaterally. But, of course, the whole thing's going to be – and they have they do have a CBA that expires December 11th, 2011. And I, I do believe that it's, it would be very smart if they – I think they are going to make the draft the focus of the next CBA. If not the focus, then a focus of the next CBA. So it seems like they have enough labor peace at Major League Baseball and with the Players Association right now and with new leadership at the union and Michael Weiner that they can go ahead and uh, get drilled down a little bit deeper on some of the other issues. We're talking about the draft and the first round of the draft specifically today on the, the Baseball America podcast with John Manuel and Jim Callis. And, Jim, uh, and the rest of the first round, I guess what were the other surprises maybe to you in the first round? I mean, was the biggest surprise maybe that Jamison Tyon wound up getting the largest signing bonus the first round? Was the biggest surprise that Zach Lee signed? Although I think you and I both said on draft day we thought – you know, no, we do not think the Dodgers are you know punting that pick. We thought too highly of the Dodgers. We thought too highly of Logan White, and we have the situation fit that he's a five-year guy that they could fit him into their budget. Uh, five-year guy because of the two-sport provision MLB allows for clubs. And then on the epic 97-minute podcast we did last week, I think we both thought that Zach Lee would sign. So maybe it wasn't as big of a surprise to us that he signed, but the fact that he got $5.25 million was a pretty – that surprised me. I thought that was – that was almost twice what I thought he'd get. Uh, what was the biggest surprise for you? I think it was Karsten Woodson not signing, to be honest with you. Yeah, because, good point. Good point. Well, because, you know, again, I mean, we knew Alex wasn't going to sign. I mean, the, the Kobe thing was a big shock because I think everybody expected him to sign. Nobody knew about the diabetes diagnosis. So I think that one – I guess that was actually the biggest shock. I heard the day before that – the things with Whitson weren't going well, that maybe that was a, a 50-50 proposition. It could really go either way. When I heard that, I was—I I didn't dismiss it, but I was like, I just got to think in the end, you know, he's going to get offered enough to work out a deal. And it, it sounds like, from what we could tell, you know, that, that the Padre, you know, I know that the center of the negotiations, there was a problem because I think the two sides could not agree on what they had agreed on before the draft. Right. The Padres felt like they had a number that they thought they could sign Karsten for pretty quick. And, you know, Karsten's side did not feel like they had enough, you know, did not agree that they'd agree to that number, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah. So a new record for using the, the, the word agree in one <laughs> sense. And, and, you know, and, and, you know, I think the Potters did up their offer, you know, grudgingly, because they really did want Karsten. Uh, it, it sounds like they offered him $2.75 million, which is what the number four pick in the draft got. And he turned it down. Um, you know, I, I've heard reports, you know, I think you have two, John, that I, I think he was looking in the low to mid threes, somewhere between three and three and a half. Right. Um, and that one surprised me a lot because it, you're not you, – that one, I mean, I don't know if it came down to, you know, one side wanted the other to split the difference and they wouldn't. But, you know, 2.75 is a lot to turn down. And, and if you do have a hard slotting system – if you do get a hard slotting system, I mean, you'd have to be a top three or four pick probably to get that when he comes out of college. So I guess that was the biggest you know, that was the biggest surprise to me, followed by the, the Kobe news. Um, you know, Zach Lee, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, I think, on, you know, even a couple days before the draft, I don't know if I would have bet given money that he would sign. But going back to draft day, and we've talked about this a number of times, I always thought there was a better chance than, than most people gave him of signing him. Just when we were doing our pre-draft stuff, you know, a lot of our sources, a lot of this, my sources in Texas, when, when I do our Texas state coverage, said, you were telling me about a week before the draft, the vibe seems to change, have changed. He might be more open. It's still going to cost a lot of money. I'm not sure who will pull the trigger. But he went from being like Austin Wilson, the Cardinals 12th round pick, a guy who everybody said, there's zero yeah. chance you sign this guy, to, you know, there might be something afoot there. And 
pick for for the Dodgers and that's the next part I mean like there's the, there's surprises and then there's you know I think that is a surprise for us both wasn't that Nick Castellanos signed even though we heard it was gonna be a big number I still think we were both a little bit surprised that he obliterated even the new supplemental first round record that Anthony Renato set with 2.55 million dollars that he got 3.45 million dollars uh, I know you loved uh, Nick Castellanos last year at the Under Armour game uh, in Chicago there and uh, you went to it again this past weekend but Boy, I mean, what do you have? Four hits in last year's game. But- he hit, yeah, no, I want to say he went four for four. I know he hit a double to every field. He made a nice play and uh, won the home run derby. I mean, he, he really could not have done much more. And you know, again, it's it's funny uh, in terms of being surprised. Yeah, and yeah, I've done. It seems like a thousand radio shows or interviews since the draft, and people say, "Oh, were you surprised?" Well, I think all of us at BA worked so hard on the draft that I've been hearing for a week or two that he was going to get between three or four million dollars um and he did so i guess uh, i wasn't surprised but, but when that number actually uh uh was texted to me <laughs> when yeah. i found out the deal was done and the number was texted to me uh you know it did jump out then you know, and, and again i don't know how much gamesmanship went on there um but, but that whole negotiation was was played very well by the castellanos side uh Back in the spring, when teams were asking about him, I believe his father was telling teams five or six million dollars, and the family's well off. You know, it's not like Nick needed to sign, you know, because he needed the money. And that five or six million scared off a bunch of teams. Yeah. And I know that the agent David Meter said, "Well, wait a minute, five or six isn't accurate." But you know what? When that number gets out there, and I don't think anybody can really pin him down for what he wants to sign, you're going to have, you know, three quarters of major league teams are going to back off of you right away. And I think. They just did an excellent job of, you know, people ask, you know, all these bo- some of these bonuses seem crazy for what the guy's talent is. You know, Nick was probably a, mid, a mid-first-round a talent, you know, somewhere in that 15 to 25 range. But I always tell people it's not just talent. It's talent and it's leverage and it's the team that takes you. And a high school player has more leverage than a college player because he's, he's got more years where he can go into the draft ahead of him. Nick's family is well off, so he wasn't going to necessarily sign a slot deal because they didn't need the money. Right. Um, I think by throwing the $6 million number out there, it, it scared a bunch of teams off. And you can, I mean, I guess you can put a price on it. The, the, the best thing, about the best thing that can happen to you in the draft, John, is to get drafted by the team that likes you most. That's exactly if right. You can make that happen. You're going to get paid a lot more than people think you can get paid. And, you know, the Tigers loved him. Yeah, David Chad admitted. confirmed yeah. this, that he was up near the top of the draft board for them. Yep. Uh, and they didn't have a first-round pick, and they're an aggressive team in the draft. And it was a, it was a perfect storm for him, and that's how he wound up getting $3.45 million. Yeah, and I think it's pretty interesting that you talk about uh, 
you know, it's like you said, you get picked by the team that really likes you. That's the team that's going to pay for you because they don't want to lose that talent. And that's you know, the, the perfect marriage for the Tigers and Nick Castellanos because they loved Nick Castellanos. And David Chad wasn't afraid to say it. He said, you would be surprised at how high he was on our draft board, I think was the exact quote. Well, the Tigers are a team that's gone over slot pretty consistently, Jim, uh, throughout this process, throughout the five years of this uh, or the four years of this uh, deadline process, and then even before that, uh, really the whole decade of this sliding, sliding process. Let's talk about some other teams that went over slot more than just in the first round. The Nationals, obviously, they got Bryce Harper done. Since the Nationals, though, did fairly well for themselves, getting A.J. Cole, Sammy Solis. When I look at their organization, I don't see a ton of pitching depth. And uh, you know, they had a first round on Ross Detweiler, who really hasn't worked out as a pitcher. You know, if you, you know, draft a college pitcher in the first uh, single-digit pick, you're hoping he's going to move quicker and, and be, have more success than Detweiler's had. Uh, Solis, to me, and Cole are pretty important for that organization. They they had a pretty productive draft signing period, it seems like. They did. And somebody asked me a question in the Baseball America chat we did online yesterday. I think the one thing national fans are going to have to, to realize, though, is they got potential impact talent in this draft. They, they got, you know, with Harper and Solis and Cole and even, you know, Robbie, Robbie Ray, 799, down the 12th round. But what they have to realize is these guys aren't going to help them as quick as Strasburg did. Right. Solis, you know, who had health issues a year ago, if he stays healthy, and he was this year, I think Solis can move pretty quick and be up in a couple of years. But, you know, these other guys, Harper and Cole, uh, you know, not to belabor the makeup point, but, uh, you know, if you talk to scouts about those guys, and I, mean, I know you had Cole in Florida. Robbie Ray, too. Scouts that think he's kind of immature. And, same, know, Robbie Ray was I, in the exact same boat. You know, well, there you go. And so these guys are not necessarily uh, – I'm not saying they're, they're necessarily soft or I don't know what I'm trying to say here. But, but they're not, they're not soft, the guys, but they're not strong. They've got a lot of adjustments to make, both just baseball-wise and I think maturity-wise, coming in. And, and so I, I think these guys are – well, they're potential impact guys are maybe three, four years down the line, including Harper, John. And so I don't know what you feel, but, uh, you know, with all the hype, the hype in him is, is <laughs> well, it's been out of control for so long. And, and uh, you know, I, think I would have taken number one in this draft – I know you and I, uh, you keep getting on me because I keep saying he's the best power prospect in the history of the draft. He's, um, you he's know, close. You know, if, if I factor in age, I will stand by that point. But, uh, okay. but uh, I don't think Bryce Harper's going to help the Nationals within two years, and I think even three years might be a stretch because he's only going to be 20 then. Yeah, I think uh, on, the, on the best power prospect in the history of the draft, I think my, my contention there is it's, it's just very it's just putting that on him is very difficult when – in the draft era, I mean, I'm not saying he was the, this hyped, clearly, but Mark McGuire was a big deal prospect. I mean, people, they, we knew more about Mark McGuire and what he had done at USC already. Um, I don't know how much the hype was around Pete and Cavillia, but it was pretty significant. And that 48 home run season he had at Oklahoma State has stood the test of time. And, and the test. Bryce Harper was at Oklahoma State in 1985. He would have hit 58 home runs, John. Come I on. I don't know. I don't know about that. I don't know about that. Going out in Stillwater. Come on. <laughs> Although, how many would he, would he have hit at South Carolina in 2002 with the wind blowing in like it did for Landon Powell? It would have been Powell. tough. Landon Powell got shut down. <laughs> but, but anyway, but it's, I, just, I, mean, I don't know what you think about Harper, but I don't think, I mean, I think people assume, especially with Strasburg getting there as quick as he did, yeah. even though I think the average fan knows that one guy is a 17-year-old kid and, and one guy was a you know, college kid and there's a difference, I, I really would be surprised if Bryce Harper had a significant big league impact before really 2014, he might get up there in 2013. You know, but if he has a significant big league impact in 2014, 
He'd be doing it at 21 years old, which would be a significant accomplishment. I, I just think people are going to have to wait on him right. longer than they realize. I, I understand that point. I've seen some people try to liken him to Jason Hayward as far as a young guy who's going to move quickly like Hayward did 2007 draft, 2010 major league season. That's that's two and a half years, and that's that's quick. And, and he I, was older. And I, he was older, and I, and I think the big difference is, I mean, again, I like Bryce Harper. I would have yeah. taken him number one. Hayward's I think approach is going to be a high average, you know, hitter like Jason Hayward. I yeah. think it's a different type of thing. I think you're going to have some, you know, Bryce goes for the, you know, he has a lot of power. He, he tries to hit for power, and I think he's going to strike out some. I, I think he's going to be more of a, a 260, 270 hitter. Uh, and again, I mean, yeah, I think I think pro ball could be a rude awakening to him in a lot of ways. I think you're. I think you're right in a lot of ways. I don't disagree with what you said. I still think he'll move a little bit quicker than that because I do think he is so physically mature. Um, I, I think he's going to move even quicker than the average 17-year-old. I think that guy's going to be a, a kind of on the Hayward timetable. I agree with your overall assessment that he's going to hit. He's going to strike out more. Going to hit more for uh, less for average and more for power. But I do think uh, his ability is significant ability. I I would have taken if there were an equal talent in the draft. There were someone else who were equal. I would have taken the other guy because I do think there's a, there's a maturity questions. I'm not a big fan of the CSN baseball program in general and the makeup of those players in general. I know that's generalizing, but I don't like the CSN program. I don't, I don't know where to put it. Having done draft coverage out there, I just don't have an affinity for players that come out of that program. I don't have an affinity for Coach Chambers and the way they do things out there. And I know he's moved on to UNLV. But uh, I think he'll move quicker than that. I think he'll be a little bit better. Um, I think he'll be closer to to living up to the hype uh, than you're saying. I think he's gonna. I think he'll move a little quicker. I just think the physical maturity is a separating factor. But he really doesn't have Hayward's patient approach, polished approach. You know, Jason Hayward takes pitches off the strike zone, even if they're called balls or strikes, and doesn't panic. If they're called strikes, Bryce Harper draws a line in the sand or tosses his helmet or whatever. That's he's gonna have to work on that in pro ball. Let's move on to another club. Ah, oh, the Pirates, Jim. Uh, on draft day, put all their eggs in the high school pitching basket, and now they've put pretty much all their eggs in the Jamison Tyone and Stetson Alley basket, spending, what is it, uh, $8.75 million to sign those two high school pitchers. No matter really what the rest of their draft does, that's pretty much the Stetson Alley, Jamison Tyone draft for them. Do you like the gamble the Pirates took? Yeah, I don't even know. I don't even know if I'd call it a gamble. I think they took the best guy on the board with, with each of their first two picks. and paid what it was going to take to sign him. You know, Tyone, a lot of people say, you know, down in Texas, that, you know, he's, he, if he's not better than Josh Beckett, he's Josh Beckett's equal as a high school pitching prospect. With better makeup. Uh, well, <laughs> you know, actually, it was funny. Is some, I mean, I think nicer kid. Maybe that's a better. Top, but a nicer kid. Yeah. But, like, depending on how much you value him, Beckett could be, like, kind of a, a hard ass in a good way. Yeah. You know, like, I hear you. So it's, it's just a different makeup. You know, not there. And when I say Jameson's, Nice. Nobody thought he was soft and you know, can't win, but just he's more pleasant to be around maybe than Beckett was. You can't see you, you can't so see that, you can't see Josh Beckett giving the wolf, the uh, the one man wolf pack speech as Jamison Tyon apparently did at his high school uh, senior awards program. Uh, but I agree with you. Uh, the Pirates, you're gonna. It's hard to get impact arms. The Pirates got two impact arms in Jamison Tyon and Stetson Allen. Really, guys, in terms of our best tools. High school pitchers, best fastball and best breaking ball, those two guys were 1-2 in both categories. And you heard some great reports on Stetson Alley before the draft in terms of velocity and the quality of his slider. Uh, so that, that they paid him a first-round bonus, basically. And the, he's a first-round arm that they got in the second round. Yeah, you know, I, I think if, uh, if the draft had been held maybe three or 
four weeks earlier, he was pitching so well in early May in about two or three consecutive starts where he was commanding his stuff better than ever, and it was high 90s, fastball, and high, I think he even threw like a 91-mile-hour slider. Uh, he might have been the, you know, uh, the top five or ten pick in the draft. Uh, yeah. He might have been the number four pick on Merritt at that point. Um, and then he, you know, his command went, went awry just a little bit. You know, it's been inconsistent. But, again, I mean, like you said, they, I think you, you can make a case. And I, I would say this. I think they got the two best pure arms in the draft. And, you know, I think the Pirates, we, we've said this for a while, you know, I think they're, they're trying to move in the right direction. I think they have the right idea. You know, they're spending on the draft. They're, they're trading veterans for younger players. You know, they, they've had, you know, so many losing seasons in a row. But, you know, when Neil Hyten and company came in, the team was in bad shape. It wasn't going to be an overnight fix. And you win. You win with stars and superstars. And they got two potential superstar pitchers here in Tyone and Stetson Alley. Yeah. And I'll be honest with Alley. I mean, that's obviously one of the highest bonuses ever after the supplemental first round. I wonder, I wonder what his original number was. Because if he, if he would have, if you told teams he would sign for $2.25 million, I'm surprised he lasted until pick 52. I, I'm guessing that they must have thrown out a higher number, and that's certainly a good bonus. I'm not knocking it. Sure. Just, if, you, if you told him, told me before the draft I could sign him for $2.25 million, uh, you would have that's taken an easy him. top 10 pick for me. I agree. No, I, I'm with you. I'm with you. His uh, high school teammate, Alex Levisky, out of St. Edwards High there in Lakewood, Ohio, signed with a million dollars for the Indians. Yeah, the Indians and Pirates are linked by a lot, geography. <laughs> also linked by Neil Huntington having gone to Pittsburgh from Cleveland. Uh, the Indians took a different approach than the Pirates. Instead of two big bonuses at the top of the draft, they have eight or nine over-slot deals throughout their draft, uh, Jim. I, I think I usually prefer their approach, but I think it, Cleveland's approach really was dictated by the fact that this draft, there was a clear consensus, here's the top three, and they picked fifth. You know, And, uh, and they didn't have a shot at one of those top three guys, so they got the top college pitcher, uh, the consensus top college pitcher in Drew Pomeranz, Paid him a slightly above average, a slightly above slot deal, but a pretty reasonable deal. If the players work out, I think this draft has a chance to be a really productive draft for Cleveland, don't you think? I, I totally agree. I mean, yeah, you're right. I mean, I think after the third pick, you could have gone in a number of different directions. Nothing wrong. I mean, I think Drew Pomerantz was the consensus number four pick in the draft for a long time. Uh, you know, you got, and you know, what, what, I think they also did a nice job of. I would have thought their first four players in the draft, Drew Pomerantz, LeVon Washington, Tony Wolters, and Kyle Blair, would have cost them $7 million, you know, some, somewhere in the low sevens, and they got them in the high fives. Uh, uh, no pun intended there. But, you know, Drew Pomerantz <laughs> only got you know, $130-something thousand dollars over slot. Right. Uh, you know, which is, you know, usually a top college pitcher gets a major league contract. And, and that was one of the stories of this draft is that, you know, Drew Pomerantz and Matt Harvey and Deck McGuire, didn't get that kind of money. They all got a couple hundred thousand over slot. Yeah, and Anthony Renato, Anthony Renato too. I mean, he got a big slot deal. He got the second highest bonus for a college pitcher. But there wasn't a college one. Not one single college pitcher got a major league contract, and no, none of the college pitchers got. This was a high school draft. The bonuses that were paid. This was a high school draft. We said it all year that the college class really disappointed people, and that was borne out by what was paid. Yeah, and I think too. I think the teams are getting smarter. The Indians did this last year with Alex White. Is that, well, you know, you're going to sign your guy. The college juniors don't have, you know, it, there's not as much leverage there. The college juniors, most of them don't want to go back for their senior year where they would lose a lot of leverage. They don't want to go to independent ball. They don't want to delay their entry into pro ball by a year, which could cost them a year 
uh, free agent earnings. You know, the, the players know this too. And I think the teams are getting a little bit better about maybe standing tough on, on some of those deals for the college juniors. But, you know, get back to the Indians. I mean, you get Drew Pomerantz, who, you know, arguably, you know, at worst was the second. He's either the first or second best pitch college pitcher in this draft. Right. You know, I think that was a consensus. You get him. You get LeVon Washington, who had a – I guess he's an enigma is the best way to put it. He's a divisive player. There's no doubt about it. Some teams love him and some teams really don't like him. Yeah, you know, but if you love him, you might think he might be a, a better hitting Carl Crawford if he puts it all together. Yeah, um, yeah, that's I'm interesting. I'm not saying that'll happen. You know, he's got a ways to go, but I mean, that's if, if you like him, that's what you see there. You know, I, pre- I, pre- I prefer the cross racial comp of Johnny Damon personally. There I like the Johnny Damon comp. Tony Walters, you know, third round, uh, you know, he, third round pick gets low first round money. Chance to be an offensive second baseman. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, you know, you know, and if, if you know, maybe if you like, you know, obviously if liked him, maybe they think he can stay it short. You know, we'll see. But at worst, you, know, you might have an offensive second baseman. The Kyle Blair in the fourth round. I mean, there's a guy who is getting some sandwich round interest. Um, very good slider, good fastball. I mean, I, I think the he's one of the. I mean, if you're talking about a fourth round pick, I mean, you usually don't get a guy like that in the fourth round who I, I think is almost certain to at least make the majors as a, a seventh or eighth inning reliever. Yeah, I love uh, I love Kyle Blue. I love I Kyle mean, that, Blue. That's a tremendous pick, and, and even past that, you, know, you go over slot, you get Cole Cook, draft eligible sophomore in the fifth round for a little bit over slot. You get in the seventh round for for 150 thousand, you get Robbie Avilas who would have been a top two-round pick if he hadn't been hurt right before the draft. Um, Alex Levisky, you touched on, was a sandwich-round pick for some. I, I really like him. He was Stetson Alley's catcher. Uh, yeah, you keep going. You know, Tyler Holt, you know, who you maybe the, the, the stance and the tools aren't, you know, like how every scout would draw him up. Yeah. I mean, in terms of base running ability and, and strike zone knowledge and defense, there weren't too many better guys in college baseball. You get... I know I'm rambling here. Michael Goodnight in the 13th round was a draft-eligible sophomore who looked looked like a top two or three-round pick at times and had a good cape. And, and even, you know, shortly before the draft in the 23rd round, they drafted Tony Dishler out of LSU right. Eunice Junior College, which was the Division II national champs. And, I mean, he was 91-94 most of the spring and has touched 97 in the past, and they got him for 255. I mean, I, I thought, you know, the Red Sox, I think, get credit a lot because they're the most obvious team that, that does the kind of the shotgun approach of getting, you know, a number of seven-figure players and, right. and you know, hire expensive guys later in the draft. But the Indians, who don't have nearly the same financial resources, took much the same approach. And, and I think this could be, like you said, John, one of the very best drafts when we look at it three, four years down. Yeah, I mean, I, I like their draft. I will say I could see it going completely south. All those players have some serious questions. Uh, but I could see it being real good for them. There's a sleeper in their draft class that I like. I know that our Dave Perkin likes their 34th rounder, Kyle Petter, out of El Camino, J.C. I think he was in our top 200 uh, out of high school last year, the year before. They signed him. I don't think they gave him a big bonus because he didn't have a whole lot of academic uh, options. Um, but Kyle Petter is a little left-hander who I I could see him in the big leagues as a lefty reliever, and uh, I like Kyle Petter, and I know he's a helped lead El Camino to the Final Four in California Junior College, and that was the first time that team had been there in 50-some years. So he's a little personal cheese ball a sleeper to look at down the line. Jim, a team that I think we annually is the opposite of Boston and Cleveland, and maybe we'll wrap up with this unless there's something else you want to hit on, is the Mets. The Mets are really, really reticent to go above slot. They do it every once in a while. They did it for Mike Pelfrey in 2005. They did it last year in the supplemental round for Stephen Matz. They did it this year for Matt Harvey seventh overall pick. Otherwise, this is pretty much a another cheat. And I guess they did it in the sixth round this year, Greg Peavy. I should throw that out there. Um, but kind of another, you know, the, the Mets are the opposite approach. 
I mean, they they seem like they've gotten some productivity out of their farm system. And I guess the other one is they did is Eric Goodell. We should mention Eric Goodell in the twenty fourth round. I almost think that Matt Harvey and Eric Goodell are my favorite picks for them in this in this whole draft. Uh, why, why? I guess what's the explanation for why the Mets go that route? And do you feel like that's limited them over the last five years and really hurt their farm system significantly in that they haven't really flexed their financial muscle in the draft the way other clubs do? Yeah, I think they could. I, I think they probably get less out of the draft relative to, I mean, you're talking about a team with a new ballpark, a new network, they're in New York. They they probably, if we could somehow measure uh, aggressiveness in the draft, that they would score near the bottom. I mean, I will give them credit. I mean, with Matt Harvey, they did take a Boris guy. I mean, and they went, I mean, you know, even the guys that went over slot. I mean, Matt Harvey, you know, is over slot, but it's, you know, 250 or 350,000 over slot. You know, Greg Peavy was 50,000 over slot. Eric Adele was 200,000 over slot. I mean, they weren't nearly as aggressive. You were just talking about Cleveland. Cleveland was much more aggressive. The, the Mets didn't have a second-round pick this year because they gave it up for free agent compensation, and they really didn't go throw that money, even, you know, at somebody else. They, right. they just didn't spend it. Um, but I will say, you know, with Harvey, I will at least give him credit. I mean, they took – there were rumblings that they could go cheap with that pick and take a guy who would sign for below slot, and they didn't do that. They, they took a Boris guy. And, you know, and signed him. But, but, yeah, I mean, this is a team that, you know, if the Indians can pay, you know, 1.2 and 1.35 million to their, their second and third picks and, and go 500,000 here and 580,000 there and a and million dollars in the eighth round, well, the, the Mets are certainly in position to do that, too, and they just didn't do it. Yeah, and they just, uh, is, there, is there another team that holds the line as, to, holds to that line as, as fastly as the Mets do? I, I can't think of one. Well, often do. They've been a little bit more aggressive because their farm system had gotten so bad, but they, 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 they don't do it a ton. Um, you know, they, they, they don't, don't go a couple hundred thousand over slot here and there, but they won't go for the big guys. Um, but I think the White Sox are the most, uh, I guess MLB would call diligent about sticking to slot. It seems like they sell a lot of their guys for $10,000 under slot to make a point. You know, they got Chris Sale, who was right there with, with Drew Pomerantz as the best college pitcher in the draft. Right. And basically told him, you know, you can hold out all summer. You know, you're not going to get, you know, a major league contract like some of the other top college pitchers have. Or you can sign quick. And they signed him quick, and, and he's in the big league, so it worked out for him. But, but I think that the difference between those teams I just mentioned and the Mets is the Mets have a ton more money to spend, you would think, than the White Sox or the Astros do on the draft, and they just choose not to spend it. Yeah, it just always surprises me that they uh, that they have never changed that approach. And I understand that they uh, – I understand there's some extenuating circumstances. You've also got uh, you know, the whole Bernie Madoff thing with the Wilpons and all that. I mean, I, but, but even that, I mean, even even that. different reports, you know, the Wilpons got soaked. Well, no, they got their money out of the Ponzi scheme. And right. They, and so I'm not even sure how much they get hit by that. And another thing that I guess is a little troubling if you were a Mets fan – is, you know, initially, when they weren't spending on the draft uh, after Pelfrey, they were being very aggressive internationally. And now I don't think they're even being aggressive internationally either. It, it almost seems to me that whatever their, their total baseball operations budget is, is they put so much money into the big league team, which continues to be flawed, and then, you know, they're putting more and more money in to try to fix that sinking ship. Right. And that they just aren't having, you know, the, the money isn't there to spend on the draft. Finally, I think we should touch on you. We've touched on the Red Sox a little bit. Was there another club, Jim, that you thought maybe went over? Uh, was anybody else even went over slot close to as 
as often as Cleveland did, other than Boston. It seems like Boston was the other team that was the most aggressive uh, club. Maybe the, I mean because I don't think the Angels went over a lot as much as they did. The Yankees kind of had a, again a kind of a portfolio approach instead of giving it all to one guy. I mean Mason Williams, their fourth rounder, gets the biggest bonus in the Yankees system, but they only have one guy over a million dollars. Um, was Boston the most aggressive team in in this draft process? You think? I do. I mean, I'm thinking off the top of my head here. Boston, in terms of seven figure players, you had their first round pick in Vidic, and then they had Renato, they had Sean Coyle in the third round, they had Garrett Chikini in the fourth round, they had an eight hundred thousand dollar player in the second round in Brandon Workman, they had a a comp pick in 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 Brent Brent, who got a a slot deal in the eight hundreds. That they went to sixes for their six round pick. Kendrick Perkins, and, you know, 415000 in eighth round from Matthew Price, and 500000 500, in the left round to Lucas LeBlanc. I think they and Cleveland had the, the biggest diversified portfolios. The Yankees, like you just said, John, they, they won $1.45 million for their fourth-round pick, Mason Williams. And they had a number of over-slot guys, but they were kind of 300000 to 500000 you know, dollar guys, guys who got, you know, 100000 over-slot, not the, the real big-ticket guys over-slot. They right. were The Yankees were... Conservatively aggressive. Does yeah, that make any sense? It does. It does. And That's... then the, the Blue Jays, who had uh, you know, more picks than anyone, uh, you know, they gave 1.5 to, to Dickie Jetson in the fifth round, and they went over slot on a number of guys as well. You know, 250, 300, 500, 600 throughout the draft. But again, it was more of a you know, because of the sheer number of picks, they went over slot, but they weren't going. You know, they weren't giving you know outside of Thon million dollars to guys picked outside the first round. And honestly, the guys I like the best, I mean, <clears throat> obviously I, I'm, I think we both are going to be sometimes a little bit biased toward guys who are from our the regions that we did in the draft. We know a little bit more about them. But the guys I like best that Toronto drafted, besides Dave McGuire, I, mean, I think Dave McGuire was good value at 11. And I do like Aaron Sanchez quite a bit. But uh, I like the guys they got for slot, <laughs> Chris Hawkins and, and Asher Wojcikowski, uh, and just as much as anybody they went over slot for, you know. So I agree. I, I think – Somebody asked me yesterday in the, in the Baseball America chat, you know, in the top 50 picks, who's your sleeper? And I said, well, I'm going to do it based on ability and not, or, you know, based on not, not where they fell in the draft. Because, like, Nick Castellanos would be the sleeper if you're looking at how low he went. But right. But obviously, he, I said, I'm not, fat, you know, not going to take a son of ability guy dropped. And I said, my sleeper in the top 50 picks, where I think the guy could be significantly better than where he went and could move quickly, is Asher Wojcikowski. I, I think he can move very quickly through the minors either as a starter or as a reliever, depending on what he winds up. I just think he has very good stuff. And I thought he was a guy who, you know, I thought could have been a mid-first-round pick, too. And it wasn't a signability deal. I just think, you know, with the college pitchers, you sometimes get this domino effect. And I think he was in the White Sox mix at 13. And the White Sox unexpectedly found Chris Sale available. And they took Chris Sale. And, you know, mm-hmm. and I think a couple of college pitchers, like Deck McGuire went 11th instead of in the top six or seven picks. And so teams, you know, got a better college pitcher than they expected, and just pushed Asher out of the first round to the forty-first overall pick. And and I like that pick. I like that pick a ton for the Blue Jays. I mean, honestly, if the Rays had taken, I mean, the Rays, if the Diamondbacks had taken Asher Woj instead of Bear Laps at six, would you have batted an eye? I mean, I thought I, I would have thought Asher Wojciechowski would have been as good or better fit there than than Bear Laps. Yeah, I think we had Asher ranked ahead of him. Yeah, they were they were close to the same territory. Right. Asher had a, a you know better medical history. Uh, you know, I guess you could say, you know, Barrett, you know, pitched at a higher level of college competition. But you're right. I mean, I, I, I would have thought if you were, you know, that would have been a prime example of if you wanted a guy to save money on and you wanted a guy who had not had any medical history in the past, right. Asher would have been a better way to go. That's, and, you know, again, I mean, I would have said, okay, they overdrafted him some to save money. But, correct. 
But, you know, it, 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 he would have been just as good a pick as Barrett Lauxer. And that said, Asher Woj was used very, very heavily down the stretch at Citadel. He pitched a complete game, and then I think he came back on three days rest in the Southern Conference Tournament. So I, I think that's I think his, the way he was used late in the year backed some teams off him a little bit. And the fact that there was a lot of skepticism about his changeup. Nobody had any questions with the fastball, the slider. He was durable all year. Quality of his stuff was very good all year. But I, I like that pick still for Toronto. We'll see how it ends up working out. Any other uh, teams you want to discuss, Jim, uh, and, and specifically, or is there anything else about the process you wanted to uh, criticize or praise? No, I mean, I think, you know, I guess we could talk a little bit. You know, I think one thing that's interesting is, is there, well, next year, next year is going to be crazy. We're going to have more unsigned guys get more money yeah. because of the, of the teams thinking that hard slotting is going to be around the corner in 2012 when it, as part of the new CBA which expires in December 2011. And I don't know if we'll necessarily get hard slotting. I don't think it's a total lock that we will. But teams aren't going to know that. And I think you know, we haven't gotten the final bonus numbers in yet for this year, you know, for every round. But if when we do, I think we're going to see that the teams spent you know, $195 or $200 million on bonuses, which will be a record. I think next year, we, you know, last year was $189 million. I think next year we could be looking at something like $220 million because teams, teams have told me, you know, hey, you know, we're not going to have too many more chances, and this might be our last chance to get high school players. And if you thought we were aggressive this year, we're going to be more aggressive next year because we might as well. You're not going to be able to sign if you do get hard slotting a lot of these high school players. Uh, you know, the last slot in round two this year was around $430,000. Well, I mean, I haven't counted yet, but there's probably 30 or 40 high school players who signed for $500,000 or more, sometimes a lot more, in slots you know, that were under $500,000, and you're just not going to be able, even if you wanted to, you know, like let's say Cleveland wanted to take Alex Levisky, you know, they, they, they were willing to pay him a million dollars. Well, you know, where are you going to draft him? Right. You, know, you only have, you only have, if you don't have a sandwich pick, you only have one million dollar slot. You're not going to be able to sign Alex Levisky for a million, and you're not going to be able to sign Tony Walters for $1.35 million in the third round. You're only going to be able to sign one of those guys if they stick to price, because you're going to have to take them in the first round. And so you're just not going to have enough slots that match the numbers of what guys are getting. And I don't think that they'll massively adjust the slots, but the slots are out of whack too, John. I, yeah, no doubt. I was looking at this yesterday. There were there were eight slots valued at $2 million or more by Major League Baseball, but there were 16 bonuses in the draft that were $2 million or more. Yeah, that's and out of whack. if you read this literally, well, there's eight players that if you had a hard slotting system, theoretically would not have signed. Yeah, no, I, I agree that, that every time I think I, – I, I'm not as against hard slots as you are. I think if you had a system where you had a medical combine and you also had some kind of evaluation process uh, for the players, and it didn't have to be for it didn't have to be a common uh, evaluation process, but where the high school players could get evaluated, have some kind of common workouts or these kind of things. But you know that everybody had a chance to get evaluated and had a chance to make an informed decision. Um, then I, I don't think it'd be too much to ask high school players to declare, okay, I'm in the draft, and then I, or I'm out of it. You can only do that, I think, and take that leverage away from a high school player if you're going to have hard slots and where they know they get drafted in the first so many rounds, they're going to get you know a six-figure signing bonus at the very least. Um, but that's tough. That's very tough. First round, high school player thinks he's going the first round, and teams are telling me, we've evaluated you as a first-round pick, and I say, okay, I'm in. 
And then I fall out of the first round, and I go in the second round in a $500,000 slot when you guys were telling me I was going to sign for a million. I, I'm I, stuck. That is, that is stuck. That is I tough. Don't think you'll ever, I don't think you'll ever see the union or, or the agents agree to that. Why? I mean, I think you're stuck. You're, st- you're stuck, but you're stuck with a half million dollars. I mean, that's that's you're yeah, but you told me I was going to get a million dollars. I understand that. That's money you maybe thought you had, but you didn't have. And I'm saying it is when it all is said and done. It is their cartel. There are only 30 places you can go to play in Major League Baseball. Well, so, I mean, I you don't have a, you don't have no, a I have, right. No, I have to it, tell you, I'm definitely signing when you can't guarantee me what I'm signing for. I, I think you're gonna if you have that happen. <laughs> If you have to declare, you're going to have a bunch of high school players not even declare. And I agree. The chain reaction is going to be is that the drafts are really going to be thinned out. But the, they will be. I agree. I'm not. I'm, I still. I, know, well, I was going to say, John, before we get bogged down on that, because we argued about that before, yeah. I think the interesting thing about hard slotting, too, to watch is I think you're going to have a difference in opinion on whether the union should give that up between union leadership and union membership. Uh, I think the union leadership, you know, headed by Michael Weiner. Uh, and I know agents feel this way too. Think that that a draft slotting could be the prelude to Major League Baseball trying to do slotting for players in the, the zero to three service time category. You have no control. You know, they can't go to arbitration, and maybe even set limits on what arbitration players can earn. And, and they do not want to go down that road. Okay. Um, and then, but I think if you're a player, you look at it like, hey, you know, these draft guys are getting too much money. It doesn't affect me. They're not members of the union. And if the owners are offering me things like a higher minimum salary, um, maybe you change the, the Super 2 rule for arbitration. Right. That if it's being the top 16%, it's the top 50%. And then you, you don't have these games where players are held in the minors to, to delay their arbitration eligibility. If you eliminate free agent compensation, which then would give owners, I think it would, it would eliminate the union say in the draft whatsoever. Correct. If I'm a player and you offer me those things, those are all things that I can see as tangible benefits for me. Right. And I might have a hard time saying, well, wait a minute, you know, this might be the first step towards some kind of wage cap on, on younger major league players. I'm thinking all these things you're giving me are good. You can have the draft. And so I think it's going to be very interesting. I do too. Because I think the leadership is really opposed to it, both philosophically and also from what they think it could mean to the major league players. But at the same time, Again, I mean, it's the you know the players get to you know it's the players who are going to decide what they want after listening to leadership. You, you can have a lot of internal debate. I don't think hard slotting is a is a given. I, I, I don't think it's a certainty that it's been reported in some places. I, I do think there is a good chance it's coming, and it's certainly going to be discussed at the forefront of the CBA. I also don't think it's a panacea. I don't think it fixes everything. And I think again, any rules that MLB makes up for the draft or for international signings or an international or worldwide draft, it's a whole other. Kettle of, kettle of fish there. But all those have unintended consequences that are very difficult to see. And like you said, set some precedents that could be applied that, you know, that's a great idea. I hadn't even thought about that, that if you do a hard slotting for the draft, maybe it is a precedent. Maybe MLB says, okay, now we're going to start doing this for guys in the minors. We're going to start doing this for guys in the major leagues. I mean, it's wherever they can institute control, cost control, they're going to try to institute cost control. So no, you're right. I mean, hard slotting, one, I mean, it's going to pretty much eliminate signing most of the high school players, which, you know, again, I mean, I, I think guys wind up, you're going to be a major leaguer in most cases, whether you sign out of high school or sign out of college, if you're destined to be. But I think one thing they really haven't looked at is it will make the 2012 to 2014 drafts 
probably the three worst consecutive drafts in Major League history. Right. Because you're going to have college crops that were diluted by high school signings three years earlier, and you're not going to be replenishing that with by signing the high school players out of the current crop. Right. Uh, you're going to have some very, very thin drafts in for three years in a row. And if you have an international draft, um, you're, you're really going to be limiting what teams can do. And, and I've gone on my soapbox several times. I know one thing they're definitely not looking at is if you go to hard slotting, I think you're killing the Pittsburgh Pirates and the Kansas City Royals and the Washington Nationals and these smaller revenue, you know, hapless teams that can't compete with the wealthier, more successful teams or free agents because they don't have the money and they don't offer the chance to, to win that the Yankees or the Red Sox, you know, or the Angels or whoever do. Uh, you know, if, you're, if I'm the Pittsburgh Pirates and I have a hard slotting system, I'm not getting Stetson Alley in the second round. You know, the Pirates, you know, yeah, I can't sign you know, Drew Maggie for 468000 in the 15th round. Or, you know, they went over slot on a number of guys. I'm not getting those guys anymore, dude, these high school guys. The Pirates have spent more money. You know, it's one of the great ironies. You know, Frank Cooley, since he's become team president, right. the, the Pirates have spent more money on the draft than any team. And Frank Cooley's job used to be the guy where he used to work for MLB, and he'd be the guy who would tell teams you can't spend, you shouldn't spend, and this is horrible, you're spending. And he goes and works for a bad team, and he realizes we've got to spend whatever we can on the draft. And, and that's probably going to be the biggest unintended consequence at all is you're eliminating those teams' ability to get talent. I mean, right now the Royals look like they're on the verge of, you know, maybe two years from now having a, you know, a pretty good team. You know, they've got a very productive farm system. That's loaded with guys they've signed for over slot, you know. Then you know Will Myers for two million, or yeah. Chris Dwyer for one and a half million. This year they did it again. You know, we mentioned Ivner and Adam, and you know they, you know they went over slot for Tim Melville. They went high over slot for first round picks like Mustakis and Eric Hosmer. Well, well, they might not have been able to sign any of those guys with a hard slotting system. It is. I I agree. Every time I uh, my 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 mind just keeps changing on draft rule changes, and the thing is. Uh, I just feel like the more MLB investigates it, the more they're going to they keep finding more, I think, questions than answers. But it's going to, I do think it's going to be fascinating if they really study it and put a lot of bright minds uh, on it and some not so bright minds, I'm sure, too. Uh, they're going to come up with some pretty interesting ideas. But I do think next year is going to be the last year of the draft as we know it. And uh, I'm not sure what the next phase will be, but I'm, I'm ready for the current phase to, to change. Uh, there will be change. I do think the one thing that is about as close to lock as can be. I do think we will get an earlier signing deadline. You know, as we talked yep. about before, yep. agents don't care when it is. You know, agent is going to take you to the deadline. That deadline's going to be just as effective wherever it is. But I think we'll get at least a, an early to mid-July deadline so that you can get these guys signed. And if you want, you know, especially with the high school players, you'll get those guys out playing. Um, you know, I don't think it's going to. You know, they, they, baseball may even think, hey, it'll save us money, which I don't think it will. But you know, if you had a, a July 15th signing deadline this year. I think you would have seen virtually every guy who signed signed for about the same money. The only players at an earlier deadline would really affect is somebody who, you know, is what you call a summer follow, who maybe had injury concern like Anthony Renato, and you get a chance to go out and see him pitch. But even Renato, if you had a July 15th deadline, would have had two or three starts in the Cape Cod League to show what he can do. And, and I don't think anybody's really against that July 15th. Or I, I almost think you can make, if you kept the draft at the beginning of June, you could have a July 1st deadline and just get these things done. And teams, uh, yeah, I think MLB would want this. Teams would like this. I actually think you might sign a couple more high school players because it, it seems like there's always a guy. Yeah, who hangs around campus. Cole yeah. or Mark Pryor, yep. who the team you know, waits until the end of the summer to, to make the big offer to because that's the way MLB wants it. And you wait so long that by that point the player just has decided, you know what, I'm geared up to go to college and that's what I'm going to do. So you might actually, 
if I'm a team, I'd even like the earlier signing deadline because I might I might sign a player who got tired of waiting around for me to be able to sign him for an overspot deal. No, I agree. I agree with you on that one too. Um, the more some of those guys hang around college, they see, hey, this isn't so bad. You know, <laughs> it doesn't no, become. No, there's nothing wrong with going to college baseball. I mean, uh, I will say if you did have a hard slot, and a lot of the high school guys went to college. That would break my heart because I love college baseball. I, I think it would be college baseball similar to kind of the. I think the golden age of college baseball was in the 1980s when. Teams were kind of cheap in the draft, and, and players were like, you know what, you know, these bonuses aren't worth it. You know, you did have guys like Barry Bonds and Barry Larkin and Randy Johnson and Mark McGuire and Will Clark, and you go on and on and on and on of guys who were drafted in the top ten rounds out of high school and didn't get offered much and said, you know what, I'm going to go to college. And you know, I think it would make college baseball obviously a lot better for the teams. You know, you get three more years to evaluate players. You get to see them against better competitions. You have a better sense of what you're getting. Uh, you know, but, but but the teams have to realize, I think, that it will come with a cost. You aren't going to be able to sign a lot of high school players, you know, if you go down that road. Yeah, again, the unintended consequences. I know I use that phrase a lot, but I think it applies very much to the draft. Well, we've gone on for about an hour, Jim, so we, we better, cut it, uh, better go ahead and uh, wrap it up. But I do appreciate taking so much time. Uh, and, again, just uh, thank you for all the draft coverage, and uh, it's it's fun to cover the draft with you. That's all there is to uh, it. Yeah, yeah, no, we have a good team. I mean, we had, I think, six or five people. I, I was losing count there uh, on Monday tracking stuff down. No, it's fun, and, uh, you know, we still have uh, more stories to write, and I know on my end I have a column to write and an overview to write, and I love to compile, you know, about there's probably ten different draft charts I like to compile to wrap it up, so... We'll, we'll still be reporting more stuff uh, the next few days on the draft, even the deadline. I, I guess we've got James Paxton and Bear Lauchs to still track down. That's right. They're still in play. Absolutely. And then we'll, then there's always the 2011 draft. So we'll uh, we'll talk about that next time on a Baseball America podcast. So for Jim Callis, I'm John Manuel. Thanks to MLB Network for sponsoring the podcast, and thank you for the download, whether at iTunes or at BaseballAmerica.com. For Jim, I'm John. We'll see you next time on the BA Podcast. So long, everybody. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.